Tonight's lesson is split up into um, sort of a, a different outline, a generic outline, and then there's almost like little outlines in um, the main section. Um, tonight we're going to split up the lesson into a nursing care plan outline. Um, for those of you who are familiar with nursing, and really honestly any medical profession, you're going to assess and diagnose the issue. From there you're going to um, turn around and develop expected outcomes that you want from an issue. And then from there, you're going to have some sort of intervention. And you will also, at the end, have some sort of evaluation to see how to progress, how to hit those goals, etc. And so that's how we're going to go through this. And we're going to be looking at the rich young ruler primarily, but we're going to take a macroscopic view of the church. We're going to assess and diagnose some of the issues with the church. We're going to have some expected outcomes from what we're going to study tonight. We're going to study the, the intervention that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. And then we'll have a section of evaluation. And so that's kind of how we're going to flow. I want us to think about what is the problem, how we're going to solve it, and where are we going to go. And that'll set us up nicely for the section when we study First John coming up here in the near future. Um, for those of you who... Um, are newer, if you have never had a verse, um, I will just call out the verse at some random point throughout the lesson. Not random, it's actually pretty planned. And, um, <laughs> First Corinthians, well, <laughs> uh, but we are going to then have that verse read and we'll continue on with the lesson. I wanted to start out with this question. I think you guys have probably thought about this, knowing this crowd, um, a few of you all are pretty thoughtful people. What would you describe quote, the American Christian as? What, what is typical of an, quote, American Christian? Yeah. Somebody that goes to church on Sunday morning and then does nothing else during the week. Doesn't read their Bible. Live a Christian life. They just go about on their daily day lives. Someone who is sedentary in their faith. Fire insurance. Okay. It's a very self-seeking faith. What do you mean by that? Well, I meant like self-centered. I meant. Okay. So it's like all about what they can gain from it, and not what they can give. Okay. This is me talking about, and it's been said before, they made Christianity a hobby. You and I, were you there when I received that challenge as well? No. Okay. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. So. Yeah. That's I found this to be true for a lot of people at my school, is that um, God is like an addition to their life. Like, you know, I have my I have my life, and then God is like added to the side, almost like um, <laughs> the the stable that Jesus was born in, but like addition to the house, a little like side side thing, um, instead of God being there. Some people do that unintentionally. Like, yeah. they don't realize that they're doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that only exists in the bad times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you were all correct. I think, I think there's such a strong American culture that more often we are first American than Christian. Um, in that, you know, the, all the things that are typical of the American dream come before what Christ has called us to, whatever that may be. Um, 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Paul is in the middle of a discussion here, um, and he is confronting sort of an issue, and there's, he doesn't want people to be confused. He's going to be very frank and very straightforward and almost categorical in his address, addressing this topic. And so I thought this was an apt place to start because he, do, he says, Do not be deceived, brothers. Then he lists a bunch of things. Such shall not enter into the kingdom of God. He's like, okay, I don't want you to be confused about this. If it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's a duck. And then he turns around and says on the other side, you know, such were some of you, you were cleansed, washed, etc. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, So I wanted to step through that passage a little bit and look at each one just briefly um, and and see how those evils have crept into the American church yet we're like, everything's fine. And Paul is saying quite the opposite, that everything is not fine if this characterizes your life. The first one in that list comes from the root pornia, porn. It's the classic Greek word for all things of sexual immorality. Um, about 65% of Americans claim to be Christians, um, but Barna Group, it's a research group, um, came out with this report called The Porn Phenomenon. Um, it reports that at least 51% of Americans seek pornography out at least occasionally. So 65%, kind of think of it as a Venn diagram, 65% of Americans are Christians, yet 51% seek out porn at least occasionally, there is overlap. 13% of practicing Christians seek out pornography at least once, once a month in comparison to 40%, 42% who do not actively seek it out. Now for um, Christian men specifically between the ages of 13 and 24, which really captures the group here, um, 41% use pornography, 41% which is an astoundingly high number. As a matter of fact, between practicing Christians, if it, when you split things up between practicing Christians and not practicing Christians, males and females, and delineate those categories, um, males practicing Christians come in third for highest use of pornography. The only two that beat it are males not practicing Christians, which 72% use pornography, um, those are 13 and 24. Males not practicing Christians over 25, 55%. And then third, males practicing Christians 13 to 24, 41%. For practicing Christian men over the age of 25, it's 23%. For practicing Christian women between the ages of 13 and 24, 13% use pornography. For practicing Christian women between the ages uh, over 25, 5% use pornography. Perhaps even a more astounding number is that one in five youth pastors and one in, five, one in seven senior pastors use pornography as well. That's 20 per, like you'd go to any random youth group, 20% of the time the youth leader will be using pornography which if you extrapolate it to the churches overall, that's 50,000 people in church leadership who use pornography. 
that's more than just a slight creep in to the church. That's an aggressive attack of the church. Um, for people our age, as a matter of fact, um, 88% say that taking something that belongs to someone else is always wrong. Um, in fourth, 56% um, say that not recycling is always or usually wrong. Um, in sixth, 48% say overacting is always or usually wrong. Seven, significant consumption of electricity or water, 38% uh, usually or always wrong. Eight, wanting something that belongs to something else, 32% always or usually wrong. And then nine, 10, and 11 for 13 to 24 year olds. Viewing pornographic images, only 32% say that is always or usually wrong. 10, reading erotic or pornographic content with no pictures, 27% say that's usually or always wrong. And then finally, watching sexu sexually explicit scenes on TV or in a movie, only 24% say that is always or usually wrong, which is pretty low, considering not recycling over doubles people saying that that's wrong. I'm not against recycling, but it seems like our priorities are a little flipped in our generation if that is what's our greatest evils in society. When we have this thing, which is a known contributor to human trafficking, infiltrating the church and such, and yet this is our list following 9, 10, and 11, that's an issue. And why do I bring it up here? In the middle of a series in which we are attempting to examine what genuine faith actually is, I feel it's important. First John is very explicit that if, if you continue in habitual sin, that you are a liar and the truth does not reside in you and that you do not know the truth. And if this sexual immorality is in your life, I am not here to ascertain whether you are, gen you are a genuine Christian or not. What I'm simply asking you to do as we go through this is for you to look at yourself and to ask yourself this question. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm not trying to be harsh, and I'm not really trying to pick on just the guys. As a matter of fact, this is a, you know, the statistics show that this is more than just guys. But I want you to take an honest assessment of yourself because I don't want you to be deceived. Paul prefaced it with that for a reason, because people who are in sin quickly justify themselves, view themselves as part of the covenant community, and say, I'm all good. This is not a problem. I go to church. Whatever you want to justify it with, but if you continue in habitual sin, either the truth does not reside in you or you have really no grounds for subjective assurance as we'll talk about in Second Peter. And yet, I say that here in this group because I know that this is an issue in this group, not just the church broader. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, I would have to say, though I know you all are really do have a passion for God, I would almost say that that 41% number is conservative in this group for that demographic. And so I want to provide a challenge to you. 
not because I'm upset with you, but because I love you, and that this is such a core issue that this, if this is not addressed and you look at this in an honest way, this could be an eternal issue, and I don't want that for you. And so I, I just ask that you take an honest assessment of yourself. Are you striving to repent? Are you, are you really utilizing the Lord's power that he's given you? Such questions as that. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to be emotionally manipulative. That's why I prefer statistics, is because they're what they are. And I just ask that you would look at yourself and be aware of where you're actually at. For the second one in that list, um, would you actually would you read that passage again? Whoever read it, First um, Corinthians, just so, like the first couple in the list, if you would. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, I. Some of you may have heard that even the United Methodist Convention is splitting over the issue of homosexuality here recently. And um, I, uh, a Christian, uh, a homosexual Christian in a leading position in a church shared this article um, entitled uh, A Holy Dissertation that he hailed as a great success for what it means to be homosexual and in the church. I have not had the privilege of silence nor the luxury of puritanical ideology to carry uh, to cover my very essential butt in a culture that negates uh, queer and trans bodies and their sexuality, expression, experience, and attraction. Being a visible black gay man who is free, whole, and worthy makes it imperative for me to sound the siren in a jockstrap. Therefore, every hateful thing someone can twist their mind to think or fix their lips to say about any queer or trans body is the evidence of lies and poison that we've been digesting since before we can remember. The audacity for most heterosexual and or religious folks to think they have a monopoly on God, all this asserted control <coughs> over that which no one has power over, all these lists of moral rules that get you into heaven written by humans who have never been and cannot create one, to put anyone in, all of the black people following the Bible, word for word, as if God wrote the words with fingers and a pen. God isn't human. God is the stuff that brings humans to life. Uh, skipping down, God isn't in a committed relationship with religion. Therefore, religion isn't a prerequisite to God. You don't need to follow anyone to get to the source to make you worthy of God's love because God is love. Anytime I experience the opposite of love, which is fear, the inner spirit of hate, I know there is a pitching off of that which is God. You can't separate yourself from God, although many try to, which is to pinch off the good, the love that is inherent within us. And I'd be remiss if, if I don't say this clearly. Sex symbols, sex workers, sex sirens, porn stars are all leaders of the subject. They are the authority, the ones who are adventuring into places we are afraid to. Instead of standing in our sexual nature, we've shamed them because we don't have the courage to be them. And with that fear comes the stigma we create so we can say with disgust that we don't even want to be a porn star. I am sick and tired hearing the smelling uh, reflux of self-hatred rolling up in our own communities, esophagus, with words of degradation towards sexual figures, all while most of us pleasure ourselves in private with them. And he goes on to say that the Bible has no authority in the matter, basically.
And so these issues, like this was shared by a leader who is on stage in a church every week. And yet, Paul is rather unambiguous. And so you wonder, how do you get to this confused state? But, I mean, you go through the list. Um, we know Christians who steal, covet, have a severe problem with coveting, have a severe problem with alcohol, are verbally abusive, and extort others. And I mean, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I know that some of you have dealt with homes that had both combined, separated, verbal abuse from either a man or a woman or abuse alcohol, all these different issues that raise themselves up in a Christian home, yet we put on a suit on Sunday because we, quote, want to give God our best. But in doing so, we don't just put on a suit of clothing, we also put on an entire new suit of a person when we roll into that parking lot. And that, to me, is what has come to define American Christianity, unfortunately, is that though we have all this unrepentant sin in our life, it's not that Christians don't sin, it's not that Christians don't struggle. Everyone struggles, everyone has issues. But God is putting you on a road to sanctifying you and cleansing you and making you into his image if you are a genuine Christian. And so if we have this hypocrisy rampant in our church where we're one thing here and another thing here, that's just not genuine Christianity. That's a bunch of people who are fans and not followers of Christ. They like observing Jesus from a distance. They like getting the benefits from Jesus, but they don't want the sacrifice because they want what they want, whatever that may be. It may be alcohol. It may be to verbally abuse somebody. It may be pornography, whatever. You know, this is, it's not, it's not one or the other. And the word reviler, I mean, that can... It's verbally abusive and trying to tear down others. For the girls, I mean, you know that this happens all around you or out of your own mouth at times, how easy it is to tear down others and to try to, uh, you just see people try to ruin people's reputation for no good reason. And that doesn't, that does not define what a Christian actually is. What I've entitled tonight um, is Jesus, Lord or Psychological Panacea. Panacea is just something that basically meets your psychological needs. It gives you a little bit of a fix mentally, emotionally. And that's, that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus called for from the rich young ruler. As we're going to get to, the rich young ruler had deep psychological needs, but Jesus wanted something more than psychology. And so let's look at some of the expected outcomes. Truth number one, psychology. Psychological felt need, emptiness, deprivation, desperation, all those psychological things that arise are necessary but not sufficient for the reception of eternal life. Christianity is, primarily, is not primarily psychological but rather volitional. One of the things that I think thinking people really struggle with is, is Christianity purely psychological? You know, we meet in communities to reinforce our beliefs and, you know, you believe in something you don't see. And I, I've talked to some people who really struggle with the fact that Christianity might be just something we create in our minds. And what this passage is so beautiful at teaching is that it is not just something psychological, a felt need to fix, but rather Christianity is primarily 
a volitional thing. So yes, that psychological need is necessary, but not sufficient to merit eternal life. Truth number two, the only being who is intrinsically and naturally good is God. Thus, preaching law is necessary to preach before grace, as only those who recognize their inherent guilt are able to recognize the graciousness of the gospel. Jesus challenges the rich young ruler's understanding of what is good, who is good. And then he turns around and preaches law. This rich young ruler did not understand the fact that he was not good. The law's purposes we're going to talk about is to show guilt. And until someone grasps the gravity of what the law confines you under, the gospel is not all that gracious because you think you're pretty, pretty solid. Third, if you do not embrace that, um, for those of you who were at Spring Break Work Week, es in regno die, non es mihi, um, it, as some of you may remember. God is on the throne, not me. If you do not die to yourselves, you cannot be saved. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is not a secondary happening, but rather occurs when you place genuine faith in him. And those, I believe, <clears throat> I, I state those out front, um, that's kind of the style that I'm tending to roll with um, as I've progressed in my teaching style so that as we go through the passage, what I'm trying to show is clear and you can see if it's substantiated in Scripture yourselves. That way it's not ambiguous what I'm trying to teach and if you agree or disagree based off the Scripture alone, then you can have something to talk about. Um, let's get to the intervention. 1 Corinthians 6.11 and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The cleansing by God through genuine salvation is the only possible remedy. So I want you to imagine this situation. You're on a long plane flight. And you're all buckled in and um, you, know, you get up to about 10,000 feet or just off the ground and you put down your tray table and you lean your seat back, you pop out your Bible um, because you're gonna study for the next four hours and um, so the person next to you is sitting there and for whatever random reason, and this is actually a uh, true story, I'm asking a question for them, this is, this is a genuine story. The person next to you t uh, turns and looks at you and doesn't even, you know, skips right over pleasantries, sees you have your Bible out and says, um, so sir, you don't happen to know how I could have eternal life, do you? Real story, by the way. Sir, do you happen to know how I could have eternal life? How do you answer that question? You have to surrender your whole self to Christ, is what I'd say. Um, Paul states that you have to confess with your mouth and, mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is in What does that mean? Confessing with your mouth is proclaiming it, so showing to the people around you that you're putting your faith in somebody else, but believing in something. Um, I believe, I don't remember exactly um, all the terms, but um, the believing there is a inward belief, not a, there is head knowledge involved, but it is a holistic belief in it, so. Other thoughts on how you'd respond to such a question? I 
I put you guys on the spot here because that's exactly what this guy did to um, the other man in this story. Other thoughts? At all? We devise many methods, um, strategies, ideologies for how to get somebody to that point. If you go into most church services, you'll find that there's an altar call and sort of this emotionalistic appeal and um, you, know, you pray a prayer, walk an aisle, raise a hand, etc. You want to bring somebody to that point where they desire eternal life. Um, now, if you just go ahead and look at um, Mark 10, 17 through 22, that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna be hanging out for most of the night. So, as you glance through it, I think you'll agree with some of these statements um, that the rich young ruler we have a pretty hot prospect here. This man is rich, young, powerful, religious, and desperate. That's one of the most wonderful things about the position that you have here in in this rich young ruler. Yet. If Jesus were in a seminary, he would fail every single personal evangelism class that there is. Because this guy has a prominent, powerful, rich, young, desperate person coming to him, and yet he can't draw the net, he can't close the deal, he can't get the guy to commit or to make a decision. Um, it, we don't hear Jesus outing with some sort of easy believism that if you just believe and all these sort of good things are going to be true. I mean, who wouldn't want that? that what, why wouldn't that appeal to an American? And, you know, often our gospel methodology is focused on the fact that you have anxiety, you have depression, you have all these psychological or emotional issues. Christ is a fix to that. Is that a true statement? Yes. Is that necessary? Yes. Is it sufficient? No. And so, instead of just kind of outing with this, God has a wonderful plan for your life, Jesus um, goes with a completely different tactic that, if you, if you imagine, like, God has a wonderful plan for your life, on one side of the billboard, Jesus' thing that he puts on the other side of the billboard is come and die. Which is, it at least gets your attention. That's that's. <laughs> That's a given. Come and die is not an attractive slogan to tag to Christianity. And I think we avoid, we kind of, we build up the decision and minimize and kind of hide the commitment and the life that must, that Jesus calls for behind such a decision. If you were not ready to die to yourself and everything in this world, you are not ready to be saved by Christ. Which sounds really harsh. It sounds really harsh and sounds really drastic and almost radical, and it is. But that's what made the early church so radical is that their quote-unquote decision for Christ genuinely meant that they died to themselves and everything that they had and followed Christ with their life. And let's go ahead and read verse 17 in the story of the rich young ruler. I want you to notice a few things about this guy. He had the right attitude. He had the right motive. He came to the right source. He asked the right questions. Uh, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. 
Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is stepping out of a building here. Um, he's probably stepping out of a house and walking down the road. So this is somebody who we would equate to a seeker in the modern church, right? Somebody who comes and is genuinely questioning what, what faith is and, and um, what there is to it. If you consider Romans, though, on the other hand, the seeker-sensitive mentality that the church has embraced today contradicts what Romans 3 presents in that, quote, no one seeks God. And what, what is the difference then between someone who is genuinely seeking God and somebody who is not is we see somebody here in the rich young ruler who appears to be a seeker, but he's only trying to fill an internal need. Those who are genuine seekers of God are divinely prompted through divine sovereignty to seek God. So um, from the other gospel accounts, we know that he was young and that he was rich and that he was a ruler. So combining the gospel accounts, you get the traditional title of rich young. And ruler. <laughs> it's, theologians are incredibly uh, uh, deep sometimes. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this man is probably not a Roman ruler. He is more than likely a ruler in a synagogue. So we have sort of a rare thing here. Uh, a young man being in a position of leadership in a synagogue is something to be you know, it's something to note because usually these positions are reserved for older men. So he is somebody who's in good standing with synagogue. He's rich, influential, religious. Um, so it's a pretty incredible guy. Like this is another instance like Zacchaeus, excuse me, uh, like Nicodemus that we were talking about. We have somebody powerful, somebody seeking out Jesus. A very, it's the convert you want. It's not the random guy off the street. This is the guy you want because he knows people in high places. I think it's the opposite of that in a song title. I know people in low places. Okay, I, I've never heard that. <laughs> Hypothetically. Um, so, so another thing that's really interesting here is that we have, we have a Middle Eastern man running. I know that sounds really weird, but Middle Eastern men, especially in this time, don't run. Okay? If you think about what they're wearing... Middle Eastern men and women, for that matter, don't really run, just like me. <laughs> for different reasons. Um, for them, they had to, you know, kind of take it all up, and they had to, you know, girt their little dress up, and... <laughs> Where the saying, gird up your loins comes from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite literally. So yes, the gird up your loins sort of idea. They had to pick it up, which exposed their upper thigh, which culturally would have been shameful and sort of looked down upon. I, I mean, the best analogy I can think of, uh, girls, you know, you're at a formal, you're wearing heels, and in a long dress, you can barely get your feet out there because your dress is that way. So you have to hike the dress up in order to run down the street. Looks pretty stupid, pretty embarrassing. And this is exactly the position that we find this rich young ruler in. An embarrassing situation, yeah, he doesn't really care. He's going against culture, he's out in public, He's a known religious leader, more than likely. He's doing something stupid, and he also has the right motive. I mean, it's a commendable thing. Um, he wants to find eternal life. That's a pretty commendable motive. So he's got a few things going for him. He has a great attitude. He's running down the street, trying to catch Jesus, being pretty, he's putting himself out there. Putting himself out there in front of his friends, his religious colleagues, and he's willing to have some shame attached to him. And he wants eternal life. What is eternal life? Um, actually, that's a great question. What is eternal life? 
What exactly does that even mean? It means a life that doesn't end. Specifically, in this context, um, a pleasant life that doesn't end in the heaven that God prepares. Uh, I'll define it by defining the opposite. Um, eternal death is living a life in, in called the second death, which is in the lake of fire, which is forever. So eternal life would be living in heaven with God forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's, let's go ahead and read John 17, 2 through 3. I think this will further our understanding just a bit. So eternal life often is presented in a context where we think of it as a quantity of time, eternal, forever. Those are sort of the ideas that go along with eternal life. However, what I think you will, you will find in these verses, not that, the, not that it's wrong to say it is a quantity of time, but more than that, it is a quality of life. Eternal life is a quality of life more than it is a quantity of life. John 17, 2 through 3. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is, in this passage, is knowing God. That's what, that's what that passage defines it. And this is eternal life, that we know God. So when you are an unsafe person, unregenerate, you are spiritually dead. You hear these terms throughout the Pauline um, literature. And then you're quickened, given spiritual life, those sort of differences. So spiritual life can be equated to eternal life. It's a quality of life. It's an ability to know God. When we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin, we do not possess the ability to know God. And eternal life, thus, is the ability and the actual knowing of God. And so the motive of this rich young ruler is even more commendable. Actually, you think about it. He is, he's climbing the religious system. You kind of think of Paul here, you know, climbing the religious system. He's got a lot of things going for him. Obviously, he's doing quite well for himself to be in a position of leadership. And yet, he knows within himself that something is missing, that he just doesn't know God. Pretty commendable. He, he is willing to recognize that he's gone beyond where the Pharisees are and looking at his own legalism and religiosity and saying that's good enough. He knows inside of himself that he doesn't know God. And so he's doing pretty well. Up to this point, he's doing very well. He also came to the right source. He, I mean, there are many false religious systems um, Jesus is a controversial teacher in many ways, and this guy's making a public spectacle of himself to go to this controversial teacher. Obviously, he views Jesus as someone who might possess the answer to his heartfelt question. He goes even further in saying that he's not only is he addressing him as a teacher that might know this question, but he goes even further to say this is a good teacher. The word he used for good here is agathos, good in nature or essence. If he meant to say something in more of a superficial goodness, he could have said kalos, external form and goodness. But not only does he acknowledge Jesus as a capable teacher, um, possibly answering his deepest life questions, but he also acknowledged that he believed that this man, Jesus, is intrinsically to the core good, whatever that means to him. So he's, he has a high view of Christ. He's asking the right questions, willing to make a fool of himself. Pride's not getting in his way. He knows he has an issue. He has psychological felt need. So far, looking like a convert you can't miss. 
even asked the right question. Some commentators have kind of bashed his question, what must I do for eternal life? You know, they're, they're looking at that, um, the works element. And I think, I think his question is fair. I mean, look at John 6, 28 and 29. Um, we, after all, we do have to do something in order to receive salvation. We do have to believe, which um, is empowered and gifted to us by God. But that is our responsibility to believe. And Jesus reacted positively to basically the same question presented in John 6. John 6. 28 and 29? Yes, sir. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So in this, a very similar question is asked, what must we do to work the works of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Same ideas here. In one passage, Jesus responds with the traditional, you know, just believe, simple faith response. That's not what we see here. Jesus turns around with quite a very different response. Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Out of curiosity, if you're the rich and ruler at this point, and you've, you know, looking stupid, putting yourself out there, you call him a good teacher, you're calling, trying to be nice to him, and he turns around with that statement, what are you thinking at that point, just out of curiosity? Like, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. What are you thinking at that point? What's the emotions that are running through you? First of all, like, I'm trying to like put myself out here, and you just like are critiquing me on my verbiage, and you're like, like, come on, just you know, just listen to what I have to say. Also, he probably has heard that Jesus claimed to be God, and so that might pose a question in his mind. I think that going off of what he says, um, he could be making or trying to get the uh, young man to think about his statement and make him understand why. If you were to actually call him good, what that would actually mean. Okay. So, that's an idea out there by theologians. There, I have jotted down um, what one author has collected as four different positions of interpretation on that one statement <laughs> by <laughs> um, Yeah, so I mean, you get this rather like shocking response back. You're just trying to be. Just trying to be genuine. You put yourself out there, and this man has the audacity to trifle over the word "good." <laughs> like he's on his knees. He's like, "What does it mean? What does it mean to be good? What, you, <laughs> what is that supposed to mean?" Um, there are a few different schools of thought on this, and I will save the one that I believe is most accurate for last. Um, um, you could be, he, he could be objecting to the application of the designation of good in the sense of perfect to any human being, including himself. Um, in other words, is he seeking that man rethink the idea of goodness since there is no one ultimately good and righteous but God? Is he saying that one should focus attention upon God without implying that Jesus and himself is good? Um, two, is he probing the sincerity of the man's address? Three, it is possible that Jesus is denying that he is good because like any other human, he too has sinned and fallen short, but nowhere in the rest of the New Testament, however, is sin attributed to Jesus. I appreciated that note by the author. And clearly, Mark at least did not understand Jesus' response as a confession of personal sin. But finally, um, on the contrary, far from acknowledging that Jesus is not good, he could be pointing out the logical conclusion of the man's correct address 
in that he is saying, if you really think about the term here that you have used, you have only described God. And if you are saying that that applies to me, speaking for Jesus, then you are saying that I am God, which is a big step. So he really wants this guy to think about the word that he's using because that's a big claim. On your way to asking what eternal life is, you've got to understand that only God is good and that Jesus is indeed God. That's, those are sort of the two things that he simultaneously challenges him with. If God alone is good, that means everyone else is essentially naturally not good in of themselves. And two, if Jesus is good, then he is Messiah. Uh, Romans 3, 10, and 12. Before one realizes and is re- before one is ready to accept the gospel, one must be ready to acknowledge the truth presented in Romans 3, 10, and 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So from there you would expect a response detailing the gospel, faith, belief, Christ, cross, resurrection, something. But instead you get verse 19. Okay. No, uh, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall... Uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Why do you think that Jesus starts lift, listing off the commands in response? What do you think his reasoning for doing such is? What would what would be your understanding of that? I think I think there's some validity to that for sure. Any other thoughts on that? You see in this response, Jesus is kind of like, why are you coming to me? You already know the commands, right? Like, you're the guy. You know this stuff. Do all these things. The law, the law was intended to give life, right? After all. And it, truly, if someone is able to keep the law perfectly then they're able to be saved through the law. Now, obviously, we know that no one except Christ was able to do that. But in the theoretical sense, if one kept the law perfectly, yeah. Galatians 3, 19 through 25. Here is is the essential reason that Jesus confronts him with law first. The same reason, by the way, that Paul begins the first... uh, two and a half... Okay. First three chapters of Romans by presenting law, guilt condemning humankind because until you recognize the guilt that you're under the gospel doesn't mean anything for the gospel to be good news you have to have some sort of bad news first does that make sense okay galatians 3 19 through 25 why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law is supposed to push you, guilt you, it, the, the, it says that the scriptures confined all under sin, tutoring them to come to Christ. It's supposed to push you to the fact that you, you can't do it and that you need Christ. But look at the delusion or confusion that the seeker here was under in Matthew 19, 20. He, the, the issue here is that he must realize that God does not have a wonderful plan for your life if you are not his. When it says in Romans 8 that God works things together for good, that is applying to them who are called for his purpose. If you are outside of that wonderful blessing in Christ, then God does not have a wonderful plan, but a rather horrible plan for your life. Not because he wants it to be that way. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but rather because in his just nature, he has to, and you want him to. You actually want that. If you don't have a God who is just, then you don't have much sense of morality to guide your life at all. Matthew 19, 20. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? So this is probably a rather genuine response, but unfortunately he's taking the law in a rather superficial sense rather than at the heart level. Catch what he said, and I want you to compare it to Paul's reaction when he finally grasped what the law actually did to him in the spiritual sense. Romans 7, 9-12. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What differences do you see between those reactions to the law from the rich young ruler and Paul? Similar spots, young, prominent, influential. What did the law do to them different in the spiritual sense? Can you ask the question again? They had very different responses to the law. What differences do you see between Paul, Paul's attitude to the law confronting him and the rich young rulers? Paul felt convicted whenever he read the law um, and saw the sin in his life that he didn't know was sin before he read the law. Um, and um, the Russian ruler looked at the law and said, okay, I'll do that, but didn't necessarily acknowledge that it was happening in his life. Okay. Uh, similar concept, but worded slightly differently. Um, the Russian ruler looked at the law as a way to life, and Paul saw it as a way to death. Mm -hmm. Paul saw that the commandment was given to give life, but when he, when he really grasped what it called for, he knew it killed him, literally. Other thoughts at all? The rich young ruler here has not quite grasped that he is dead in the spiritual water when the law confronts him. 
he, I think it's genuine. You know, the next verse says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked on this pathetic man because he, you know, when you're, you're trying to teach a little kid something and you're like, you just don't get it. But you, you have an overflow of love in your heart for them. It's not like you're just like, ah, sometimes. But <laughs> Jesus is the same way here. He's just, he doesn't get it. And so you have a man here who is feeling he has a need for eternal life, anxious, but it's not enough. And it separates, this is what separates a Christian from a non-Christian is that a Christian has more than emotional experiences. Jesus demanded that this man die to himself, literally die to this life. It's more than just an emotional experience. And for those of you who struggle with feeling the emotions of Christianity that we supposedly feel we should feel, that's okay. There's a strong volitional component that Jesus calls for. It's not just all about the feelings. They're there, they're real, they're strong, not denying them. They're necessary, but not sufficient to bring somebody to eternal life. Samuel Bolton said, when you see that men have been wounded by the law, then it is time to pour in the gospel oil. It is the needle of the law that pulls through the scarlet thread of the gospel, so you've got to wound them before you can sew them up, which I think is an appropriate quote. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go sow what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He felt an emptiness, but it is the real repentance of sin and forsaking it that Jesus calls to, turning to God. Unless you've turned from your sin, repentance and faith are synonymous terms. Faith is turning to God. Repentance is turning away from sin. Same idea, just said positively or negatively. And this man had an idol. His money was his idol. And money, like most things, are not inherently evil. It's not even that Jesus said, ah, I see this sin, you must give it up. It's that he would not be Lord of this man's life in this situation. The rich young ruler wanted to come on his terms, but Jesus wouldn't have it. And I say to you, whatever the thing is that you refuse to let go of, absolutely refuse to let go of, that is the same thing that we're dealing with here in this situation. Whether it's the expression of your sexuality, whether it's the fact that you must have a spouse, whether it's some fear, what, I mean, there's endless possibilities for what it could be. Now, I can't hit them all. You have to look inside and evaluate what is Lord of your life. And if, some, if, you're, if you refuse to give that up, and give that place to Christ, Jesus would not take him. And I don't mean that in a scary sense. I'm just saying that that is what Christ called for. Um, Jesus proved that this young man does not pass the test of the law, Mark 12:31 and Leviticus 19:18. In effect, Jesus hit right here at the issue. He was a sinner that would not forsake things of this world to follow Jesus. He would not come and die. He would not come and die. 
if you love something more than you love God, you are not prepared to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Which sounds really drastic and really radical, and it is. Which is insane. If you think about all the people in the church that you're like, wow, man, you know, they, they're just a carnal Christian. <laughs> that's, that's not a class of people Jesus sees here. He doesn't see half-hearted Christians. He sees people, Christians as people who are complete followers of him. Mark 12, uh, 12 31, Leviticus 19, 18. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Uh, well, you said that was Leviticus? Or, no, that was Mark uh, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That that word sorrowful, it um, it's used in a couple different ways. It's um, imagine imagine looking out at a gloomy sky when it's just going to rain all day. That's kind of how that word is used. That cloud just you just bleh, gray. You know you know what I'm talking about. You you ever feel like that gray cloud in the sky? You take some vitamin D for it, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that word is also used though as the pangs of childbirth. To I mean, if you want to get a little more serious, like that's pretty like you, just that gloomy, deftful, just deep, incredible pain of guys. It's like passing a kidney stone. I don't know. Like maybe that's maybe that's relevant. I don't know. He went away deeply sorrowful. Okay, and he, that word really is trying to capture that this is. He really felt something. He really did. This is a man who asked the right questions, had the right motive, had the right attitude, had all of it going for him, but he could not get over that one hurdle in that he loved his riches too much. Um, I, want, I want you to um, consider um, Luke 14, 15 through 23, um, and then we'll read the passage after that. I'm, we're gonna go just through a couple verses, just reading them. Um, to show that this is a consistent teaching of Jesus. This is not just one isolated incident, and we've kind of been doing that throughout this entire series, but I'm just going to throw some, just like, you're like, yep, that's what that is, sort of verses at you. So in Luke 14, 15 through 20, here you hear this classic gospel invitation, you know, go into highways, byways, invite everyone, yada, yada, yada. Luke, uh, Luke 14, verses 25 through 34, whoever has that. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, he, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, what shall it be seasoned? In, I'm not going to have these read, Acts 29, Acts 
319, Acts 17:30, Acts 8, 9 through 25, you hear similar themes coming through the apostolic beginnings as well. Um, Mark 9, 34 through 38, Matthew 13, 44 through 46, Luke 9, 57 through 62, Mark 9 first. Mark 9. Uh, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must first be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. Um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Uh, Matthew 13, 44-46 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The ultimate task is submission to the Lordship of Christ. Plain and simple. Last two sections. Rationale. Um, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. I want none of us to end up into this category. None of us. Just because we claim to know Christ does not mean that we are Christians. Um, what's described in Matthew 7, the grandiose sort of spiritual things, you know, casting out demons, doing miracles, all the cool stuff. And yet by the end of the passage, he says, you know, those who, can sit, those who do continue sinning will be accused of practicing lawlessness and dismissed on that day. And he does not say that it is few, he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, and shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Last word, lawlessness. Continue that in 1 John 3, 4 through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one who practices lawlessness, which is making a habit of sinning, knows him. And those are the people that will be denied entrance onto that into the kingdom of God in that day. And so no matter what ministries you execute in the church, what position you hold, 
how high you make it up in our religious institution, basically. If you do not follow the teachings of Jesus and live in a radical life, it reveals that your faith is not genuine. Yes, faith alone saves, and we have covered that at length prior in this series. But genuine faith always produces good fruit. Always produces good fruit. And if you live in a life of habitual sin, I wouldn't say the first John didn't say it, you have not seen him or known him. Thus, the evaluation that Paul admonishes to some individuals in Corinthians is applicable and necessary. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that it's about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so I'm not here to, as I said at the beginning, I'm not here to determine where your relationship with is, is with God, but I am here to help you along in the introspective process and Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We should always have this respect and awe of God as we work out our salvation. And this is not to diminish the work of Christ and the security that we have in him. Nor is it that I want you to turn into legalistic people just cranking out actions because that, well, that's what we have to do, but rather it should be such a desire to follow God, that we love God, that we are passionately pursuing God, and that letting go of all this in, the, in this world and in our lives is a wonderful thing to do. As First John puts it, and we'll talk about this, um, in the upcoming weeks, his commandments are not burdensome, is what it says, which is a crazy thought. You know, we think of commandments as rather burdensome, but when, when he is telling us, execute all these things, die to yourself, it should be such a overjoyous experience in some ways because we get to die for Christ. It's not just random purposelessness that we give up our entire life and our future for, but rather because we are giving it for a purpose, for Christ. And so the application I would challenge you with is um, study First John, study James. We're going to, in this group, but privately, look at the test, read it for yourself, and determine if you meet them, honestly. And to try to be as honest in your assessment as you can, not clouding your judgment. Um, let's finish out here by looking back at Mark uh, 10, back in that rich young ruler passage. Jesus takes this interaction with the disciples and then turns it into a teaching moment with his disciples. Um, it, it, says, um, it says some really amazing things in Mark 10 through 20, uh, 23 through 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We're the rich people, okay, by the way, Americans. This is beautiful for Americans. Okay, go ahead. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now I want you to listen to these 
meditate on this as your heart as I read these things that Jesus says that it's required to leave. Peter kind of contrasts himself with the rich young ruler. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time house and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, here's the answer to the rich and ruler's question, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. House, are you willing to go wherever God calls you even if it means living in a shack or on the street? Brothers, sisters, father and mother, are you willing to leave the family you hold dearest? Are you willing to be wherever God calls you to be, whenever God calls you to be, however God calls you to be? Wife, are you willing to forego the comfort of relationships? Are you willing to go wherever God calls you alone and without the companion to satisfy your sexual, social, and romantic desires? Children, would you forsake living for the purpose that your children can be more well off than you were? Are you willing to operate your relationship with them in an unforeseen way? Lands, are you willing to give up all the wonderful things money can buy? Are you willing to forsake the American dream for the sake of Jesus and his gospel? I promise, based off of this text, that if you do forsake those things, and God may allow you to have them, but in your heart, if you are willing to actually let them go, and for him to be Lord of your life, you will receive a hundredfold of each of these things. When you let go of your family, you'll get a hundredfold more in the Christian community. Who are my brother and mother and father but these, as Jesus said? With persecution, yes, because living a godly life is not an easy life. But the most blessed part, and this is what I want for each and every one of us, is that in the next life, we will have eternal life, which is knowing God. And that is the highest end of man that there could ever be, right? That's what we strive for. That's why we do this whole thing. That's why we meet together. That's why we try to live a good life, whatever. Whatever you do, it's the whole point. You want to know God and know him in your life. And this is what it calls for. And it's crazy and it's radical and it really confronts people who think they are okay, have sin in their life, and yet are gonna receive this eternal life in the age to come. So I challenge you, look at yourself, evaluate, work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that we can become holier, a people, a peculiar people set apart for God unto good works. We're going to split up into discussion groups for a brief few minutes. Um, if you want to split up by gender, we can. If you do not, don't. We have not assigned the groups. Get some people that you're comfortable or uncomfortable with to challenge you, whatever you must do. And see if you, I mean, seriously, I've challenged you some of, some of you in my kitchen, some of you at 12 o'clock in a one-on-one -on -one way, just walking through this list, you know who you are. Are you willing to let these things go?
And it's not that as a Christian, when you're first becoming a Christian, that you realize all that Christ's lordship entails, but you have to be willing. And if you're not, I want you to get to that place because that means in the age to come you get that blessing of eternal life and hundredfold in this life. So talk to some people, challenge each other, read off these lists, see if there's anything that sits above Christ on the throne of your heart. Okay. Go ahead.